Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you just stumbled across this video, we're glad you're here. Hope you'll stick around and be a part of what God's doing in our midst. Right now we're in a series from Romans 6 to 8 called, How God Helps Us Change. And today's message is about the help that God gives through the Holy Spirit. For many people, the Holy Spirit is a mystery. And I hope that this message will help you see what he's doing in our lives in concrete ways. But before we consider what he does, we need to come to terms with why we need him. I sometimes listen to an NPR podcast called This American Life, and they did an episode once called The Devil Inside Me. <laughs> in it, they interviewed a number of people and they asked them a strange question. They asked if they had ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. Now, that's a pretty unusual question for a secular radio program to come up with, don't you think? Well, it turns out it was a good question. The host, Ira Glass, said that it was like people had been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them the question. One person said, the voice is irresistible, always. I'm in the thrall of that voice. A woman replied, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own and I can't tame it anymore. One man expressed amazement at how finely calibrated it was to every part of his feelings, including the feeling that he wanted to smoke cigarettes. He said it was like, you might as well have another cigarette because this is it. A woman who had just gotten engaged confided that her inner voice told her, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take that ring away because he's going to find out the truth about you and how much you suck. So you better distract him with a really thin body. Obviously, each person described what Glass calls the devil inside in different ways. But what they all seemed to agree on was that there was this powerful force inside them that made it impossible for them to be the person they longed to be. It was a voice of temptation and shame, of deception and godlessness. In the Bible, God presents a unique plan to deal with the devil inside. And nowhere is that plan spelled out in more detail than in today's passage. It's found in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 17. But I'm going to read it in four sections so you don't miss anything as we go along. Follow along as I begin by reading verses 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is the word of God. Now, what we're going to see in each of these four sections that I'll read for you today is that it'll describe one way that the Holy Spirit helps, and then it will give a description of the kind of person whom he's helping. Now, you need to be careful here. It's not saying that, it's not saying what we have to do in order to receive the Spirit, Spirit's help, but it's describing what is true of those who have received the Spirit's help. If you're a believer, you should see yourself in these descriptions and be more clear about what your role is and what God's role is in bringing about change in your life. Now, let's start with the first principle. 
The Spirit frees from condemnation those who walk according to the Spirit. While the devil inside speaks shame and judgment at us in our failure to keep God's commands, the Spirit brings believers relief from that judgment. He frees from condemnation those who walk according to the Spirit. Now, verse 1 makes this incredible and now famous declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news because according to the Bible, the world stands under God's judgment. We've all sinned and fallen short of his commands. And even if we've never read the Bible or been to church, we feel this. People talk today about forgiving yourself. But you can only forgive yourself if you're the one whom you've hurt. But that's not what happened. We feel a sense of shame and judgment because we've offended a holy God. People often will try to turn to religion to try and fix this. And what usually happens is they try to keep a bunch of rules in the hopes that they'll feel better about themselves. But on our own, the rules just end up showing us how sinful we really are. Verse 3 describes God's rescue plan. It says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He gave us the law. God gave us the law. But the devil inside us kept us from obeying it. And so God did what the law couldn't do. The rest of the verse says, By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, that's confusing, right? What he's saying is that God the Father sent the Son into this world to rescue us. It says that Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh in the sense that he was at the same time fully human and yet without sin. And so on the cross, he took the sin of the world on himself. He became sin and received the condemnation of that sin. And so when we put our trust in him, all of the condemnation that should have been ours was transferred to treat Jesus Christ on the cross. So why is that important? Until you have a way to get out from under the condemnation, you'll never change. Imagine trying to run a marathon and everyone along the route is calling you a loser and telling you that you'll never make it. Some of you don't have to imagine. You've heard the words of condemnation from others. You've heard it from the devil inside. The Holy Spirit sets us free from that voice. He declares no more condemnation, no more judgment, no more, uh, no more guilty verdict. But it's not a blanket declaration of amnesty. In verse 1, it says it's for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in verse 4, it gives a further description. It says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, we'll see what this means in a minute, but notice it doesn't say there is no condemnation when you walk according to the Spirit. It's not like this is something that you can move in and out of. There's no condemnation for those who walk according to the Spirit. What Jesus did to remove sin's condemnation enabled people to walk according to the Spirit. And so if you're in Christ Jesus, if you're connected to him vitally through faith, then you have the authority of God to reject the labels of condemnation that your inner voice would put on you. 
When the devil inside you whispers, not good enough, you're a failure, you're hopeless. The God of the universe replies, no judgment, no condemnation. That one belongs to me. And you need to hear that and believe that to make progress in obedience. So verses 1 to 4 teach us that the Spirit frees, frees us from condemnation. It frees from condemnation those who walk according to the Spirit. But verses 5 to 9 explain that the Spirit gives peace to those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Here Paul shows us what was behind so much failure in dealing with sin in our past and how we can make progress now because of the Spirit. The Spirit gives peace to those who set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And watch how Paul explains this in verses 5 to 9. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, in this section, Paul divides the world up into two groups of people. It's not good people and bad people the way people often think. There are those, according to verse 8, who are in the flesh, and those in verse 9 who are in the Spirit. You're either in the flesh or in the Spirit. And according to verse 5, those who are in the flesh live according to the flesh because they set their minds on the things of the flesh. And in the same verse, it describes those who live according to the Spirit as those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what is Paul actually describing here? This word flesh isn't exactly that inner voice or the devil inside us that those people described in the interviews, but it does include that. The flesh is translated in some versions of the Bible as sinful nature. It's the corrupt human nature that we inherited from Adam. It's who we are in our broken humanity. We're all influenced by that correct, corrupt human nature called the flesh. But before the Spirit comes into our lives, Paul says we're in the flesh. In other words, our broken humanity defines us and controls us. It shapes our mind and our values and our will in ways that oppose God and promote sin. Defined by our broken humanity, we can do some good things, but we're doomed to failure. We can't please God. But faith transfers us from that life in the flesh to life in the Spirit. We're still haunted by the same sinful nature, but it no longer defines us. Now the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our hearts. He is the defining presence in our lives. He changes us. But he changes us, according to verse 5, as we set our minds on the things of the Spirit. He seeks to transform us from the inside out as we make the things of God our preoccupation. Setting our mind on the things of the Spirit involves feeding on Scripture, letting God's Word, what, what's called the sword of the Spirit, seep into our hearts and change how we see and think. 
But the word for mind here, it's not just talking about our intellect. It includes our will. It's the heart that says, not my will, but yours be done. It's the mindset that says, more of Jesus, less of me. That's how God changes us in the new covenant. He comes into our lives and shapes how we see and what we want. And it's incredibly liberating. In verse 6, Paul says, To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, spending an afternoon scrolling memes or binging Netflix, that may feel easy, but it's not life-giving. There's no shalom peace there. That comes, according to the passage, as we binge on God's Word, as we fixate on God and the things of God and what He wants to do in our lives. So, where is the setting on your mind most often? Is it set on the things of the flesh or of the Spirit? How does your screen time measure up against your scripture time? What does your search history reveal about what you think most on? If the Holy Spirit lives within you, feed him the Word of God. He's the power to overcome sin in your life. Seek his power. Submit to him. Cooperate with him. Unleash him. The Spirit gives peace to those who set their mind on the things of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit also gives hope to those who are killing their sins. While the Holy Spirit gives us power to battle sin, it's still a battle. And if it was going to go on forever, we might pack it in. But he gives us the hope of victory. There's an end in sight. The Spirit gives hope to those who are killing their sins. Now, follow along as I read from verses 10 to 13. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now here too we have help from the Holy Spirit and a description of those who are helped. The help held out in verses 10 and 11 is of our future resurrection. It describes in verse 11 of how the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead and now resides in us. He will one day raise us to eternal life together with God in heaven. This is hope, but it's also a reminder that the Holy Spirit's work in us isn't over yet. You need to know that because this isn't all that there is. He's given us a great eternal hope. That's what gives us the endurance to carry on. But he explains in verse 12 that that hope stirs up an allegiance within us also. It's not to the flesh, though, but to the Spirit. A life lived in the flesh, shaped by our broken humanity, ends in eternal death. There's no hope in that path. But our eternal hope fuels our battle against the flesh. In verse 13, Paul says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. God doesn't save us so that we don't have to deal with sin. He saves us so that we can deal with sin. Sin is still an ongoing presence and reality in the life of a believer, but now we have God's help to deal with it. 
And notice the language here. It's by the Spirit you put to death. This isn't a passive let go and let God. You and I are still personally responsible to kill the sin in our lives, but it's by the Spirit that we do that. We do so in dependence on God's help and God's strength and on God's word. If you thought Christianity was just signing up to get God's forgiveness and go to heaven, but in the meantime, you're just going to live your life however you wanted, then you've misunderstood the gospel and the message of the Bible. The verse doesn't suggest that there's some quota of sins that we need to fulfill in order that we live. It just describes an ongoing action. The people who live are the ones who are killing their sins by the power of the Holy Spirit. I talked to someone this week, and I was impressed how they were able to list the four or five areas of sin in their life that they were working on. The battle lines were clear and the resolve was obvious. The Spirit gives hope to those who are killing their sins. Are you in the battle? Or have you hung up your sword in the closet somewhere? Let the hope of final victory give you the strength to keep showing up for the fight. Now, so far we've said the Spirit frees us from the condemnation and gives us peace and hope in the struggle. But the final hope may be the most precious. In verses 14 to 17, we see that the Spirit gives assurance to those who follow where he leads. We don't have to guess where we stand with God. We're not waiting to see whether we've measured up. He's adopted us as his children and chosen us as his heirs. The Spirit gives assurance to those who follow where he leads. Follow along as I read verses 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now notice in verse 15 that the spirit that we've received isn't one of slavery and fear. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit's working in our lives isn't oppressive or driven by threats and intimidation. Some people assume a bit of fear is good for us. If God completely assured you of his acceptance and love, you figure that would just make you sin and do what you wanted. But that treats fear as your only motivation, and it's not a very good one. No one ever won an Olympic medal because they were afraid of losing. They're gripped by a greater motivation than that. And it's the same with the Christian life. We pursue holiness not because we're afraid of losing God's love, but because we've received it. We kill sin in our lives, not because we're unsure of where we stand with God, but because we are so secure. We follow the Spirit's leading, not because we're afraid what will happen if we don't, but because we're God's children and we know that he wants the best for us. Verse 15 says that we've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, when Paul says sons, he's not being gender exclusive here. The point is that in the first century culture, it was the sons who received the inheritance. So the point is that all of God's people are treated as heirs. And that was often the point of adoption in Roman society. You adopted someone so you could pass on your inheritance. 
And it says by the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for dad or father. But the point of mentioning it here is that it was the word used by Jesus to speak to God the Father in prayer. And Paul is saying that that's the kind of relationship we enjoy with him now. By the Spirit, we can approach God with the warmth and intimacy that Jesus enjoyed with him. And this is what you need to grow in righteousness. You can't learn to love until you first experienced God's perfect love. You don't understand what it means to be patient or faithful or merciful or true until you've seen and experienced those qualities in God himself. Holiness comes in the intimacy of a relationship with the only holy God. And the Spirit assures us of that relationship. He assures us even as Satan tempts us to doubt it and feel we're unworthy of it. But this isn't just a blanket statement for anyone. The inheritance as children of God and the intimacy of a family relationship with him isn't something people can just assume. Watch in verse 17 how it ends with these words, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's not saying that there's some quota of suffering that we need to chalk up in order to enjoy this security. Again, Paul's just clarifying what a true Christian is, what a child of God is. Believers are the ones who are willing to go where Jesus went. We don't just obey God when it's easy. We don't just follow Jesus when it's convenient. As verse 14 says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So what do you do with this passage? And what does it mean for you to, for how you deal with that inner voice that Ira Glass calls the devil inside? For starters, I hope it undoes some of the superficial thinking that we're prone to. If you think that what God's looking for is your willpower and a list of moral do's and don'ts, then you haven't understood the message of the Bible. In your case, maybe the devil inside has blinded you to what God is saying. Christianity isn't just another self-help program. It's an intervention by God himself. So if you think you're on your own trying to resist the devil inside in order to gain God's approval, let me urge you to stop and come to Jesus Christ for salvation. Through repentance and faith, receive the forgiveness and love that he gives as a free gift. But that gift changes us. The Holy Spirit calls us from the inside to follow him, calls us to the word of God and teaches us to train our minds on it instead of living under the power of the devil inside. The Holy Spirit equips us to battle with our sins and to put them to death. And so if that doesn't describe you, let me urge you to go back to the beginning. If Christianity is just a little religious inspiration so you can live your life the way you want, you've missed the point. If you have received Jesus' intervention, though, through faith, and if you are in the battle dealing with your sins, then cling to the incredible help that the Holy Spirit gives. There's no more condemnation, no more guilty verdict. And so when you stumble in sin and Satan says, you're an imposter, it's no use, then choose by faith to believe God's verdict instead of his. Know that you have peace with God that can't be taken away. Cling to the hope of eternity, the hope of victory, 
the hope that this battle with sin will one day be over and we'll see God face to face. And don't live like an orphan. Don't live like a runaway. You've been adopted by the king and given a great inheritance. He's on your side, so go to him often. It's only at his feet that we learn his ways. Let's look to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that there is help. We thank you that you saw the ways in which sin controlled us and blinded us and kept us in darkness. Thank you that you didn't just tell us to try harder. We thank you for the intervention in Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone listening to this now who hasn't received that salvation, hasn't received that intervention through faith in Jesus, move them to receive it now. For those of us who have, Father, we pray that we might cling to the amazing help and provision of the Holy Spirit. Help us to train our mind on the things of the Spirit. Help us to live in the hope and the peace, the final victory that he is calling us to. Do that great work in our hearts, Father, for we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see the incredible help that the Holy Spirit gives. And I hope it gives you renewed strength to follow him, to set your mind on him, and to rely on him as you put to death the sins that entangle us. If this message has stirred up questions, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.